So we've been working our way through Luke 1 uh, for Advent. And Advent, as I've said each week, simply means coming. It's the idea of longing or expectation or awaiting the arrival of the Lord Jesus. And we celebrate Advent by looking back on the generations who longed for the coming Messiah, who waited for a Savior to be born. And we celebrate the fact that He has indeed come, that He has been born, and we also ourselves long for His return. We await His return. And I've titled this sermon series, Rejoicing in Hope, because there is a hope laid up for us. We know that because He came, and because He promised that He is coming again, that He will indeed do so, and therefore we can rejoice. So with that in mind, we're going to jump right into our text this morning, we're going to look at Luke 1, verses 57 through 80. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they all were astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God, for fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So two weeks ago, the last time we met, we looked at Mary's song of praise in Luke 1. Verses 46 through 55. And my plan was to preach through Luke 1, 57 through 80, the text we just read last week. My plan was that we would preach through this text last week and then we'd look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 11 this week, today, Christmas Day. I mean, after all, 
Wouldn't that text, the the telling of the story of of Christ's birth, Luke 2, be more appropriate for today than Zacharias' song? So I almost stuck with the plan and just skipped ahead to Luke chapter 2. However, the more uh, I thought about it, even though we had to cancel last week's service because of the ice in the parking lot, it was like a skating rink out there, um, as I thought about it, and the more I studied Zacharias' plan, the more convinced I was that this was exactly what God would have me preach today, this very text. Because Zacharias' song is a celebration not of the greatness of John the Baptist. Instead, it's a song celebrating the greatness of Christ. And therefore, it's very appropriate for today, Christmas Day. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves with our text, I want to provide a brief review of what we talked about last time we met, seeing as though it was two weeks ago. And by way of review, Mary, in her song, The Magnificat, Mary praises God for both who He is and what He has done. And in verses 46-50, through she praises God for who He is. She says, she recognizes God as her Lord, her Master, the one who has authority. She recognizes God as her Savior, the one who saves, the Rescuer. And she recognizes God as the Mighty One, the one who is capable, the one who is able to do as He pleases. And then she goes on to connect who He is with what He has done. She says He has done mighty deeds by scattering the proud and exalting the humble. He's done mighty deeds by bringing down rulers from their thrones and giving help to His servants. He's done mighty deeds by sending the rich away empty-handed and filling the hungry with good things. So within Mary's song, there's three enemies of the Gospel. And the enemies of the Gospel are self-importance or pride or not seeing our need for a Savior. There's self-governance, or our, seeing ourselves as sovereign, seeing ourselves as not needing a Lord, or seeing ourselves as our own Lord, and self-sufficiency or autonomy, seeing ourselves as mighty, seeing ourselves as the ones who are capable. And each of these attitudes are enemies of the Gospel, not only because they deny God's work, but also because they deny who God is. They deny the very nature of who God is. So I say all of that because I hope that today, as we consider Zacharias' song, that you're able to see the connection between what Zacharias says about the coming Messiah and what Mary said about God in her song. So without further ado, let's dig right into our text. Look at verses 67 through 69 with me. Luke 1, 67 through 69. There we read, and his father, this is John the Baptist's father, by the way, his father. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Zacharias, in his song, he praises God and says that he has done three things. He says He has visited us. He says that He has accomplished redemption for His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Notice that just like in Mary's song, Zacharias describes the future work of God with the certainty of a past event. In other words, just like Mary, Zacharias understood that God would be faithful to accomplish that which he began. So he describes these things in such a way that he, he describes them as having already been fully accomplished. He makes it clear. He says, He has visited us, He has accomplished redemption, He has raised up a horn of salvation. 
So let's consider each of these things. He says he has visited us. This is a common Old Testament theme. Throughout the Old Testament, God visits his people. And sometimes it's for the purpose of judgment. And sometimes it's for the purpose of blessing. In Exodus 32, uh, 33-34, we read this. We see this coming judgment. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, and the idea there is visit. The word carries the, really the idea of visit. When I visit, when the day when I visit you, I will punish them. I will visit them for their sin. Or the purpose of blessing we see in 1 Samuel 2.21 where we read this. The Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. You see, in both instances, it's clear that God is visiting or attending to His people in order to carry out His purposes. That's why we also read in Jeremiah 29, 10-11 verses you're probably familiar with. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good work to you. To bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He says, I will visit you and I will carry forward my plans. God is faithful to His Word. You see, and He works all things together for His glory. So when Zechariah says, God has visited us, we should understand him to be saying that God was attending to His plan. God was carrying through His plan. His promise of a coming Messiah was being realized. So let's look also at not only He has visited us, but number two, He has accomplished redemption. The word redeem carries the idea of setting one free by paying a price. And it can refer to the releasing of a prisoner or freeing a slave. And both the Old Testament and New Testament repeatedly speak to the fact that God is man's Redeemer. Isaiah 44.22 says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins are like a heavy mist. Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. I have bought you back. Isaiah 48.17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. I am the One who is your Redeemer, therefore I am going to lead you. I bought you. I own you. I will lead you. We see that clearly in 1 Corinthians 6.20 when Paul says, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That you have been bought, you have a new owner, therefore a new master, and you need to submit to Him as master. See, Zacharias in his song of praise recognizes God as his Redeemer. He recognizes that God ransomed him and therefore he is called to submit to him as his Lord and his Master. Not only has he visited us, not only has he accomplished redemption, but thirdly, he has raised up a horn of salvation. He says he has raised up a horn of salvation. God's people had longed for a Savior. As I mentioned earlier, they longed for generation after generation waited to see the coming Messiah Richard sang in the bleak midwinter last night. And I couldn't help but think, even in that, people, I thought, how many people are sitting here thinking, we don't even know that it was winter time when Jesus was born? That's not the point of the bleak midwinter. 
It's the fact that we had been waiting. People had been waiting and waiting and waiting and there was silence and waiting for the coming Messiah. And in the midst of that, God bursts onto the scene. In the middle of darkness, there's a glorious light. And God raised up a horn of salvation. A Savior, one to rescue them from their enemies. A Deliverer. And Zacharias knew that that day had dawned. That God had raised up the One who would deliver His people. Isaiah 53, verses 3-12 through tells us more about this Anointed One, this Messiah who was to come and the way in which He would rescue His people. Isaiah 53, a text you're familiar with, says this, starting at verse 3, And He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. It doesn't sound like the Christmas story. Right? The, whole, the Christmas story, everybody's celebrating the birth of this cute little baby. But we have to connect Christmas with Easter. That the two are inextricably bound together. That we cannot celebrate one without celebrating the other. They go hand in hand. And one of the hardest questions, probably one of the worst questions is, what day is more important in Christendom? What day is more important in the story of the Gospel or in human history? And we can't answer that question. Because He came to die. The two are bound up together. We dare not celebrate a cute little baby lying in a manger without also celebrating the Savior hanging on a cross. Christmas is joyous, but it's also heavy. It should be heavy in realizing why God sent His Son into this world. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from men from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin, the shortcoming of us all to fall on Him. This is Jesus. The Lord caused our sin to fall on Him. You see, the Scripture is clear that He came into this world, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross to pay the penalty that we could not pay. And He was raised on that third day, defeating death, showing His defeat over death, so that we too might live with Him. You see, the Gospel begins before Bethlehem, but it certainly has Bethlehem in mind and it has the crucifixion in mind and the resurrection. They're all part of the glorious good news. So when the angels, as we looked last night, when they came in Luke 2 and said, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is no question that the whole Gospel is contained in that. The good news was not, behold, there's a cute little baby being born. It was, behold, 
The Savior is born. And the Savior is Christ. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. And He is your Lord, your Master, for He will redeem you. He will free you from slavery. And therefore, you are called to submit to Him. So having understood that God has attended to His people and He's accomplished redemption by raising up a horn of salvation, we need to understand who this horn of salvation is. Because that's the Gospel message. That He has raised up this horn of salvation. Well, I want you to see three things. I want you to see, number one, that this horn of salvation, Jesus, that He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Look at verses 69 through 74 with me. Uh, Luke 1, 69-74. says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David His servant, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father. Check this out. He's raised up a horn of salvation. This horn of salvation is... In the house of David, the one who was spoken of by the holy prophets from of old, and he's done so, and by in doing so, he's remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. See, Zechariah recognizes that this Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah was the one who was promised long ago, and that through him, God would keep his promise to Abraham and make him the father of a multitude of nations. And that he would keep his promise to David to raise up a descendant who would sit on his throne and whose kingdom would endure forever. God was sending a mighty king. That's what he promised. That's why Zacharias refers to him as a horn of salvation. He refers to him as a horn of salvation. The term horn is used throughout the Old Testament as a sign of strength, power, and victory. Listen to the following Old Testament references and let this shape the way you view Jesus. 1 Samuel 2.10 Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and He will exalt the horn of His anointed. 2 Samuel 22.3 My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Very similar wording. Psalm 92, verses 9-10 through For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish, All who do iniquity will be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. You see, this idea of a horn is a symbol of strength. You think of an animal that has has horns or that has a horn, and you you should think, be afraid, be very afraid. So when he says he's raised up the horn of my salvation, he's talking about the strength with which the Messiah that the Messiah would have, that He is the Christ. He is the anointed King. And far too often, we want to make Jesus just this weak and fragile, and that's not at all who was born 
on Christmas Day. It's not at all who was born. He was the Christ. He was a mighty king. So having seen Jesus as the Christ, let's now consider how Zacharias praises God for the fact that He is Lord. Number two, he refers to Jesus or points to Jesus as Lord. Look at verses 74 through 75 with me. He says, He has visited us. He's raised up the horn of salvation. He's redeemed us. Uh, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. He is a mighty horn of salvation, and that is a symbol of strength, but we do not need to be afraid, for He is on our side. He has done this to grant us that we, being rescued, His strength rescues us from our enemies so that we might serve Him. See, the concept of Jesus' lordship is closely connected to His position as the anointed King. In other words, His lordship speaks to how we relate to His position as King. However, it's important to get this idea of lordship straight because it also conveys the idea of ownership. In other words, He has authority and that authority comes from the fact that He is the owner for example, if you, if you have a landlord, right? a landlord can tell you whether or not you can paint the walls of your apartment. Why? Because he is the rightful owner of the property. And there's a reason we call them landlords. This idea of lordship conveys this idea of ownership. And Zacharias in this song recognizes and submits to this coming king's authority. He says he has redeemed us. He's bought us back. Think of redemption centers. I remember talking one time with somebody who said, what are, all these, what are all these redemption centers that you have around? What are they for? So they're recycling centers. We buy bottles. They're places where you can take your bottles and cans and they buy them back. And they thought, oh, I thought it was some like religious place or something, right? <clears throat> for some, that, you know, the, bottle, the things contained in those bottles and cans may be a religion of sorts. But the reason we call them redemption centers is because they buy back that which, um, they buy back those recyclables. And in the same way, God has bought us back from slavery. He's redeemed us. So that, the scripture says, we might serve Him, might serve the Lord Jesus all of our days. As our Redeemer, He is our Lord. Luke, the book of Luke, is communicating the same thing that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, right? which we read earlier, when he says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You've been bought, therefore you're to glorify God. So having seen that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Lord, that he, we now need to consider that He is Savior. He is Christ, He is Lord, and He is Savior. More than just one who will be a mighty king, and one who has purchased us, redeemed us, and has authority over our lives. He is also one who rescues people from the penalty of their sin. Look at verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Zacharias turns his attention to John the Baptist for a second here. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. The point is not to praise John the Baptist, but to point to the fact that John the Baptist is given this wonderful position. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins 
the one that the Most High will actually be able to do. He'll, he'll provide forgiveness for their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias praises God for the fact that his son, John the Baptist, will be used by God to point people to the way of salvation. The term knowledge or knowledge of salvation refers to more than just intellectual understanding, but it refers to genuine experience. Zacharias is saying that God's people will be given the experience of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. He says that those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death will be visited by He who is light. The term darkness is used throughout the Scriptures to convey this idea of lostness and helplessness of those who are caught up in sin. Isaiah is talking about the desperate situation in light of the nation's wickedness. In light of Israel's wickedness, he's talking about the desperate situation that they're in when he says this in Isaiah 59. He says, Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. But praise God for His plan of salvation. He says in Isaiah 9, verses 2 and following, He says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And then verse 6, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we know this to be Jesus. We know this passage to be pointing to Jesus. The great light who was born to us. That's why Jesus says in John 8.12, He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So just in review, this passage points to Zacharias in his song. He points to who this coming Messiah is. And he says, He is the Christ. He's the Anointed One. He is the Lord. He's the One with authority and ownership. And He is the Savior. He's the One who will save God's people from their sins. I hope you see the connection between that and what we read in Luke 2 last night. And what we read just a few minutes ago. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The other day I had a visit by uh, Jehovah's Witness at work. Saw them pull in. They, and the, you could tell right away, they pulled in with a car. And one of, the, one of my coworkers said, Jehovah's Witnesses are here. And I said, I've got this one. So I jumped up. I went and I talked for a little while. And um, I said, he said, there's salvation in one person and one person alone. And that's Jesus Christ. And I said, Yes. The question is, who is Jesus Christ? And the question is, do you believe in the same Jesus? Are you talking about the same Jesus that I am talking about? And as we talked, it became very obvious that there was a different Jesus. That Mary in her song praises God. And she praises God 
for being Savior. She praises God for being Lord. She praises God for being the Mighty One. And we saw this two weeks ago. And then Zacharias praises Jesus for being Christ. Right? The Mighty King. The Promised One for being Lord and for being Savior. The very same thing. Mary relates to who God is. Zacharias relates to who Jesus is. And they use the same description. And then in Luke 2, we have this beautiful proclamation by this angel. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ and who is Lord. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God, fully man, come in the flesh to die for us. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. So how do we, here's the big question, so how do we apply all of this to our lives, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, if you remember, we've been, I've kind of trying, I've been trying to relate back to two weeks ago and talking about where we were two weeks ago. If you remember, within Mary's song, we talked about how there are three enemies of the Gospel. And those three enemies are self-importance, self-governance, and self-sufficiency, or pride, not seeing our need for a Savior, sovereignty, seeing ourselves as our own Lord, and autonomy, seeing ourselves as mighty, seeing ourselves as our own King. And each of these enemies, each of these attitudes are enemies of the Gospel, as I mentioned, because they deny not only God's work, but who He is. So how do we apply all of this? Well, I would say today, like the angel did in Luke 2.11, Let's celebrate the birth of a Christ. The birth of the Promised One. The birth of a mighty King. The birth of One who is able. The birth of One who has all authority. Let's celebrate the birth of a Savior. One who saves us from our enemies the greatest enemy of all, namely, our sin. The One who paid that penalty on the cross, who died in our place so that we might be forgiven. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know who this Jesus is. That He is Christ. He is King. There is no other King who will, who will not bow down to Him. All kings, all lords, all authorities, all rulers bow down to Him for He is the ultimate authority. And He is the One who died in your place so that you might be forgiven for your sin. And He is our Lord. That if He is King, and if He is Savior, He is also our Lord. He bought us with a price. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not about making Him the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life. And we are called to submit to His Lordship. So we lay down our pride and we say, I need a Savior. We lay down our sovereignty and we say, I need a Lord. And we lay down our self-sufficiency. We lay down our own kingdom and we say, I want to follow Him as my King. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. 
Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that this Christmas and every day henceforth, we would remember the true meaning of Christmas, so to speak. Not that a baby was born, not that a good teacher was brought into this world, but instead the good news that a Savior was born, a Savior who is Christ and who is Lord. God, may we remember Your Son Jesus in that way, and may we live in light of that truth. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.